So we will read Psalm 23 once again. Psalm 23, the familiar, the Lord is my shepherd. And the text for this morning's sermon is verses 5 and 6, the last two verses. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning we finish our short series of sermons on Psalm 23. We'll consider verses 5 and 6. There's lots to think about in this psalm. And a time like the time that we're living through is a good time to think about the various pictures and ideas that this psalm brings before us. In verses 1 through 4, the dominant image has been that of the Lord as our shepherd and we his people as his sheep. In the last two verses, the imagery of the shepherd and his sheep is left behind. The picture in verse 5 is of David sitting at a table in the presence of his enemies. God has prepared a table for him. God is treating him as an honored guest while his enemies look on. The theme of God taking care of his people in the midst of trouble is continued, but we have a new set of images to explore. And this is how God in the Bible, through his spirit, makes the truth of his care for us real and powerful in our experience. The God, the, the Bible is meant to be thought about and dwelled upon, and particularly, in particularly the Psalms are poetry, and poetry is intended to impact our emotions as well as our minds by means of imagery, by means of uh, beautiful or striking expressions. And may God enable us to feel the impact of what he's saying to us in these verses. Now, maybe at first glance, verse 5 may not seem to be too relevant for us because it speaks about enemies and we may not be aware of having any enemies. The Psalms have a lot to say about enemies. But I think for many of us, those passages do not seem to relate much to our lives because we are blessed to live in a culture where we are quite safe from enemies. We have good law and order. Our lives are relatively peaceful. We're probably not too stressed about being harmed by other people. Certainly the situation in which the Old Testament saints lived was different from ours. Now, that's not to say that our world today is so peaceful. Clearly, many people in the world are suffering because of human enemies. 
It seems like the experience of the people of God in ancient Israel was closer to that of people living today in poorer countries where there is less order in parts of the world, in parts of the world today where regular people are more at the mercy of thieves and or tribal hatreds or corrupt officials or persecution. Even though that there's lots wrong with our system, most of us, I think, are not too bothered with enemies. But we can and we must think about enemies in a broader way. Often, most often the enemies that the Bible speaks about are related to the fundamental biblical divide between those who are for God and those who are against him. The biblical background for enemies begins with Genesis 3 and the fall. Immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, there was war. There was conflict between God, with God being on one side, and Satan and Adam and Eve on the other side as rebels against God. God, in his grace, intervened to bring Adam and Eve back to his side. And so the ensuing struggle that would define human history would be between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That is described in that key text in Genesis 3 that sets up the struggle between God and his people and Satan and his followers. That is really the meaning of human history. And God said there to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the whole biblical story is the story of the struggle between God and Satan, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It's about God's plan to overcome <clears throat> Satan and the destruction that Satan's rebellion unleashed on the world. It culminates in Jesus' victory over sin and death and Satan on the cross and through his resurrection. But that means that you and I have enemies. In many cases today, and indeed more than ever, the people of God have human enemies who hate them and want to destroy them. We have them too, but so far they are more restrained in our part of the world. But there are spiritual enemies, even if there are no physical ones. There is spiritual warfare going on all the time, which means that there are evil spiritual beings who are who are dedicated to our hurt and our destruction. And behind all of them is Satan. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against <clears throat> flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Satan and his forces use everything within their power to harm us. And what they're after is to get us to turn away from God, to get us to join them in their rebellion against God. And they will use many different means to try to do that. They'll use temptation to make sin look attractive. They use persecution to get people to, to turn away from the Lord. They use suffering of other kinds to make people think that God has abandoned them or to tempt them to be bitter against God. 
It's important to see that the hardships and suffering, suffering is used, that hardships and suffering are used by Satan to get us to turn away from the Lord. While at the same time, suffering can be used by God and is used by God to test and to strengthen us. We see this basic perspective um, expressed in that wonderful text at the end of Joseph's life or the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, which shows very clearly how the same event or the same history can mean one thing for an enemy and another thing for God. Remember what Joseph said to his brothers at the end of his life. They had sold him into slavery out of hatred. At the end of the story, Joseph was able to say to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The same event can be used for evil, uh, can be meant for evil, also by Satan, and can be meant for good by God. We see the same thing happening in the story of Job. Satan had a hand in Job's suffering. Satan was trying to get Job to curse God. God allowed Satan to try. <clears throat> Satan had one purpose in God, in, in Job's suffering, and God had another. The same point is made by, in the account of Paul's thorn in the flesh. Paul relates this in 2 Corinthians 12. And whatever the thorn in the flesh was, it was something difficult for Paul to bear. And he refers to it as a messenger of Satan to harass him. But in the same time, in the same context, he teaches that God was using the same affliction to demonstrate his power in Paul's weakness. My point is that everything that tempts us to sin is an enemy, but God is using it as a test to strengthen us. That applies to everything hard in our lives. It applies to many other things as well. But anything that, hard, that is hard is a temptation to sin. Temptation to be bitter against God. It's a temptation to question God's love and God's care. It's a temptation to be discouraged or to be anxious or to complain. These are all enemies. Satan is seek, seeking to destroy us through them. There's a sense in which every form of suffering is an enemy because Satan is using it as a temptation to get us to turn away from God. But at the same time, God is allowing it or sending it as a means of testing or discipline to strengthen us. Another enemy that the Bible mentions, there is another enemy that the Bible speaks of. We have an enemy within our sinful nature. In 1 Peter 2.11 Peter refers to the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The passions of the flesh are part of us. They are our sinful nature. Because our sinful nature is not completely eradicated when we receive the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> we have an enemy living inside of us which we are called to fight against and to put to death. This is behind the famous saying of John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. The passions of 
the flesh war against our souls. They are within us, but they are a deadly enemy of our souls, and we're called to fight against them. This is a life and death struggle. In Romans 8.13, Paul says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So this is a, a serious matter. It's a matter of life and death. We have enemies within us, a sinful nature that wars against our souls, and we're called to put that enemy to death by the power of the Spirit. The Bible also speaks of death itself as an enemy. 1 Corinthians 15.25 says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is the result of sin. Sin came into the world through the temptation of Satan. Sin and death and Satan are all interconnected. They are our enemies. They threaten us with separation from God, which is the ultimate disaster. The issues of life are momentous. The issue of life is heaven and hell. And anything that tempts us away from God is a deadly enemy. So we're surrounded by enemies. Everything that we're called to fight against is an enemy. Spiritual warfare is a common way of describing the Christian life. And that which we fight against are our enemies. They range from Satan himself to temptations to our own sinful nature. Hardships and difficulties can be enemies in that they tempt us to things like discouragement and despair and hopelessness and fear. So David's mention of enemies is very relevant to us as we consider his statement here that God prepares a table for him in the presence of of his enemies. The table is a symbol of fellowship and provision and security. The background for the symbol is the meaning of hospitality in the ancient in the world of ancient Israel. We have seen that it was a dangerous place. There was some measure of law and order, but there was a lot more disorder than what we are used to. And so vulnerability to human enemies of various kinds was a reality. In that context, hospitality included protection. A host was obligated to protect his guests from from their enemies. And that is a key part of the picture that David is painting for us in verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The enemies are present, but they're on the outside looking in. The enemies are nearby, but David is safe because he is sitting at the Lord's table, the table that God had prepared for him. But another key aspect of hospitality was was fellowship and is fellowship. Eating together points to to fellowship, and fellowship with God is always in view when eating and or feasting is mentioned in the Bible in connection with God. It's a big theme in the Bible. Some of the offerings that were offered in the temple were fellowship offerings where some of the offering was burnt on the altar, but the rest of it was eaten 
by the priests and by the people together as a symbol of fellowship between God and his people. Many of the feasts of the Old Testament also included people eating together in the presence of God. And so the picture that David is drawing by describing God preparing a table before him in the presence of his enemies is one that includes fellowship with God and safety in the presence of his enemies. It also includes refreshment, anointing the head of a guest with oil was a kindness that hosts showed to their guests. Remember how Jesus, in the story where he visits the home of a Pharisee, said to that Pharisee at one point, you did not anoint my head with oil. One commentary explains, quote, to rub a guest's head with olive oil, was part of the prescribed etiquette followed by a solicitous host as he welcomed his guests. A paraphrase of the idea is, you welcome me as an honored guest. So being anointed with oil in this way was was valued because it was refreshing. The idea is similar to in our context, inviting a guest to use the washroom to freshen up. But as the example of Jesus and the Pharisee shows, it's also it was also a sign of honor. And a failure to anoint a guest's head with oil was a slight. It was an insult. And finally, David, in, in this verse, says, My cup overflows. There's more than enough food and drink. The table is full to overflowing. The picture is like some of our Thanksgiving meals where the food will not all fit on the table. David is speaking about feasting. He's describing more than enough. He's describing abundance, not only of drink, but also of joy and well-being. And all of this is happening in the presence of his enemies. The picture is out of a place of safety and fellowship and honor and abundance while being surrounded by enemies. There is a place of fullness and joy and well-being in the context of danger. There is a huge contrast between inside and outside. And that is the point of the verse. The enemies are there. And yet David is in this oasis provided by God where he's not only safe but experiences the richness of life with God. It's a wonderful picture to translate into our situation. We've already dealt with, dwelt on rather, the, the meaning of enemies for us. That concept as it is developed in scripture fits with the experience of believers in any circumstance in life. Christians in China and Nigeria are surrounded by enemies, but so are we. The greatest threats that we face in life are not physical, but spiritual. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body 
in hell. Our enemies are every bit as dangerous as the enemies of believers in other parts of the world. The greatest threats that we all face are spiritual, and we are all surrounded by those. But in the midst of that danger, God prepares a table for us. It is in the presence of our enemies, and it is a place of abundance, a place of fullness of life, a place of overflowing well-being. That is the reality of every child of God. We're surrounded by all manner of enemies, but in the love and care of our Savior is a place of safety and fullness. And the reason that this is so is that God himself is our greatest need. Fellowship with God is so fundamental to our well-being as human beings that if we have it, we have everything that is necessary for security, for fullness of life. And if we don't have it, there's nothing else that can even come close to making up for it. Salvation in Christ is our greatest need because salvation in Christ has to do with reconciliation with God. It has to do with the forgiveness of our sins and being made right with God. And if we are right with God, God is looking upon us in favor. He has given us hearts to love him. We have what we need for fullness of life. And that is the case even though we are surrounded by enemies. Now there's an obvious parallel here with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is part of the biblical theme of eating a meal with God. In the Lord's Supper we have table a table set before us in the presence of our enemies. The Lord's Supper symbolizes the provision that God makes for us in Christ as well as symbolizing our fellowship with God through Christ. It's a time, it's a place of refreshment. It's a place where our cup overflows. And even though we cannot celebrate the Lord's Supper at the moment, we can remember it and we can look forward to it in the future. It can still function in a meaningful way in our lives. But the Lord's Supper is not the only place where we experience the reality of God preparing a table for us in the presence of our enemies. We experience fellowship with God, safety, refreshment, and fullness of life in all kinds of ways as we live our lives in the presence of our enemies. We experience it in worship services, in family worship, in private worship. We experience it whenever we think about God and life with God, even as we are busy with our lives. There can be these oases throughout the day when we pray and when we worship God, when we delight in Him, in our thoughts, and when we consider our lives in the light of God and His truth. Now, this is not to say that we experience the fullness of this at every moment. Life is not like that. Life is not static. There are ups and downs. Our struggles are not over. There are times when we feel overwhelmed by our enemies. 
David experienced these ups and downs as well. In Psalm 6, verse 7, he writes, My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. What our text describes is something that God's people experience more or less as long as we are in this life. Life does not always feel like our cup is overflowing. But there is something of this in that is inherent in a saving relationship with God. When we trust in Jesus for salvation, there is inherent in that faith some degree of comfort and hope and fellowship with God. It may be mixed with struggles, with doubts, but faith in its very nature has some degree of hope and comfort in it. But more is possible in terms of our experience. And this is a great part of what the Christian life is all about, growing in our trust in God, growing in our enjoyment of fellowship with him, being gradually conformed to having our greatest satisfaction in God himself. And so what David describes when he speaks about God preparing a table for him in the presence of his enemies, and when he speaks of God anointing his head with oil and and, and pouring his cup to overflowing, when David describes that, that is something that all believers experience to some extent, and we have the resources in Christ through the Word and through the Spirit to know more of that fullness of life that he is describing. The last verse is more of the same, but with different imagery again. The basic image here is that of moving along the path of life towards the culmination of the hope of the believer, which is dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. Now, the original meaning of David in the psalm referred to dwelling in the temple. The word translated forever in the original Hebrew means literally length of days. Concept of eternal life is revealed gradually in the Bible. It's not as clear in the Old Testament as it is in the New. But it is implicit in the Old Testament in the hope that Old Testament saints had in an eternal God. David's hope for dwelling in the house of the Lord for length of days expresses his hope of worshiping in the temple all the days of his life. That same longing is expressed in Psalm 84, 4, where another poet sings, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. As the Bible unfolds, this longing becomes the hope of dwelling with God in his presence forever. And so the way that we tend to think about Psalm 23 is indeed the right interpretation in the light of the New Testament. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And David is singing 
that goodness and mercy shall follow him all the days of his life. The hope is to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The confidence is that goodness and mercy shall follow him every step of the way through his life. And the word for follow here, the Hebrew word is literally to pursue. The idea is more aggressive than the idea of simply following. David is saying that goodness and mercy shall pursue him all the days of his life. Goodness and mercy are not just sort of meandering along, following David on his journey through life. They're not somewhere in the vicinity. They are pursuing him, and the meaning is that God is chasing David with goodness and mercy. What a beautiful picture that is. God is chasing us, pursuing us with his goodness. He's after our true and eternal good, and he is pursuing that aggressively. Mercy here is a word that's often translated steadfast love. It's covenant faithfulness. The kind of faithfulness that is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. The kind of faithfulness that pursues people even when they are not faithful to him. The fulfillment of this idea is the cross of Jesus. The cross showed more than anything how much God was pursuing his people with goodness and mercy. The the cross shows how much God was willing to sacrifice for the good of his people. And Paul, in Romans 8, follows the logic of this when he writes in verse 32, "He, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So we have two more wonderful verses that emphasize how blessed we are as people of God. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. These verses make it clear that while God's people experience danger and hardship in this life, God's care for them and his commitment to their blessedness and well-being is such that they, we, should be able to go through the hardest times of life with comfort and with hope. The Bible certainly does not promise that we will not suffer, but verses like these are in the Bible to assure us that if we belong to God through faith in Jesus, all is well. And we should look at a passage like Psalm 23 and ask ourselves, what response is God seeking to elicit by what he is saying to us in these verses? Clearly the response that he is after is trust and hope and joy and confidence in God's care for us. 
The, the words of this psalm are intended to help us to go through the trials and the struggles of this life in peace and contentment, knowing that God is very much committed to our well-being. True well-being is found in him, and there is nothing in heaven or on earth that can touch it. So let us dwell on the words and the images and the ideas of this psalm. Let us consciously interpret our lives in the light of them. That's what God is calling us to do by them. The Bible and our own experience makes it clear that experiencing the fullness of rest and confidence that this psalm seeks to encourage is not automatic or easy. God is calling us to order our thoughts according to the assurances that he gives us that he is committed to our good. We are called to believe what he says. We are called to trust. And the greatest way that he encourages us to do that is by these wonderful assurances of his love and care that he gives us in his word. And so let us seek to bring our inner life in conformity with what is real, with what is true, according to the word of God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these words of assurance and comfort that you give to us. Lord, we have also meditated upon our enemies, and we know that there is danger all around us in many different ways. Indeed, even the the good things, the things that we enjoy, can tempt us to live for them instead of you. But you also use hard times and uh, times like this pandemic to... uh, You use it for our good, but Satan uses them also to tempt us to despair, to tempt us to be discouraged, to uh, tempt us to be bitter against you, to tempt us to fear. And Lord, we pray that you would enable us to to live and to feel in conformity with your truth and these most wonderful images and comforts that you give to us in this psalm. Lord, help us to take it with us. Help us to make it real and vivid in our lives, to to have it in our minds and to to think of our reality through the images that are presented to us in this psalm. We pray, Lord, that we may be able to honor you and glorify your name by the way in which we deal with the trials and the uncertainties and the pains of life, knowing that you set a table for us in the presence of our enemies and that you are chasing us with goodness and with mercy all the days of our lives. Thank you for that wonderful grace, and we pray that you would comfort and strengthen us with it. In Jesus' name, amen.